0: I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to two openings of Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and Romans chapter 12. We started a series a couple of weeks ago uh, that we've uh, titled Sanctification, and we're using uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30 as a beginning point for that. We'll read that. But of him, Paul is speaking by the Holy Ghost, but of him... Are you in Christ Jesus, who of God Jesus is made by God, the Father, the will of the Father, unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption? Now notice he mentions four things, and, and most people focus on three of those: wisdom, that's a great thing, everybody needs that, everybody wants that. but that's not just a one-time thing. It's not that just that Jesus was made unto us wisdom, and you never have any need for wisdom from that point forward. For example, in James chapter one, it says, if any of you lack wisdom. Let him ask of God. Well, the ones he's talking to are people that have already been uh, brought into the family of God. Jesus has already been made unto them wisdom. So if Jesus has been made unto them wisdom and that's a one-time thing, why would they lack wisdom? Now, it's saying Jesus is the source of wisdom that we can tap into any time that we need to. Then it says that Jesus has made unto us righteousness. Well, righteousness is a one-time thing. That's accomplished only by the blood of Jesus. The Bible says we've been washed and purified by the blood of Jesus. But you know, as well as I do, that you don't come to the end of your righteousness at the moment that you're saved. We don't grow in righteousness, but we sure do grow in the knowledge of it. And the more and more we grow in the knowledge of righteousness and who we are in Christ and what that means to us, the more we're able to walk worthy of the Lord and walk pleasing unto him. Then the last one, it says he's made unto us redemption Well, redemption is a one-time thing. Jesus pays for the price once and for all, but it's not that we understand everything or know everything about it as soon as we get saved. Again, that's something that we grow in the knowledge of it. We find out what redemption means. We find out what Jesus has redeemed us from. Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. There's a a, a growth process. There's a, a growing in knowledge about what the curse of the law is, what Jesus has redeemed us from, specifically spiritual death, sickness, and poverty. Well we don't know all that when we get saved. So there's a growth in the knowledge of these things even though it's accomplished in us. And as we grow in the knowledge of these things, we're able to partake of it and take hold of it more and more and more. So we don't grow in it from the standpoint that it gets bigger from God's end. We grow in the standpoint of we're able to partake more of a partake of more of what Jesus has already done for us. But the last one, the one that we skipped over, is sanctification. And sanctification seems to be something that nobody wants to talk about. Because generally, when you talk about sanctification, you're talking about rules and regulations and how somebody's supposed to live. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't want any rules on me. Do you? Generally, I don't think the people that are trying to make the rules are qualified to make them. And that's why I don't want to live by any rules. But what is sanctification? Sanctification is very simply separated unto God. Now, notice Jesus separated you unto God when he shed his blood for you and you made him the Lord of your life. That's when sanctification took place for you once and for all. You were separated from the world unto God. But that doesn't mean you know everything about the way you're supposed to live, does it? And the Bible certainly goes further and says that there are things that even though we are now in Christ, even though we have been separated unto God for His service and for the worship of Him, it tells us that there are things that we're supposed to do in life. Now turn with me over to Romans chapter 12, because Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 really settle the sanctification issue. Churches have fought for years, hundreds of years, really, over what sanctification is. A lot of people in the body of Christ say that Jesus sanctified us. Uh, According to 1 Corinthians 6, 12, we were washed and we were sanctified by the blood of Jesus. And so that's it. Sanctification is a done thing, done deal. But then others in the body of Christ talk about sanctification as either an event or a process that takes place after you're saved, that purifies you and separates you for the things of God. Well, what is it? Which one is it? It's both. I don't discount anybody. For example, John Lake talks about sanctification as being a one-time event in his life after he got saved. He talks about how that there was a point in time where he was praising and worshiping God. And the Spirit of the Lord came in the room where he was. Uh, he was alone. The Spirit of the Lord came in the room where he was. And he said he burned out all of the desires that I had for the world, the things of the world. Well, I haven't had an experience like that. Have you? He talks about that as being a sanctification experience. And because it happened to him. He taught that everybody should have the same thing. Well, I haven't had that. I've had more of what Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 talks about as a process. Now, I don't doubt for a minute his, his experience, but I can't build a doctrine off of his experience or anybody else's. Amen. And we all have a tendency to think whatever God has done with us is the way it's supposed to work with everybody. That's why you get some people that, that uh, they've got a gift from God in a certain area, and things come easily to them, and they think everybody's supposed to be the same way. I know there's a fellow that uh, I went to Bible school with that God used him in songs, and he would get songs just right and left, and they were good songs and Holy Spirit-inspired songs, and he said that everybody is supposed to operate the way that he does. Well, I can't. I don't have what he has. Now I get my own songs, but mine aren't for singing. Mine are for me by myself when nobody else is around, when nobody else knows. I'm one of those that Beth was talking about, that God hears something different than what, what it sounds like here on the earth. Well, it's easy for us to say, here's the way it ought to be with everybody. I'd like to say that pastoring is the easiest thing in the world. But it's because God's called me to that. It's because I've got a gift to do something like that. Now, you may not agree, but not a lot of people don't. But I can't see me doing anything else. But what happens is we see somebody else doing something and we think, well, that's the easiest thing. They make it look easy so we can do the same thing. Well, if you don't have the same gift they do, it's not going to work for you. We've had people leave the church and go out and and, uh, go into ministry, go into pastoring, try to start their own church and stuff like that, come back with their tail between their legs and say, Pastor Mike, we don't know what happened. Well, I do. You didn't have the gift to do it to start with. Yeah, but you make it look so easy. Well, I don't know if that's true or not, but whatever it does look like is because of the gift that God has placed on me. Same thing's true for somebody else, no matter what that gift is. So we can't look at what somebody else is doing and build a doctrine, a Bible doctrine on it. I can't take John Lake's experience on sanctification and build a doctrine on it because that's not the way the Bible talks about it. Well, what does the Bible talk about? Notice Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren. So he's talking to Christians, isn't he? He wouldn't call the church, or the uh, unsaved brethren, would he? He's talking to people that are born again, people that Jesus has made unto them wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Other translations say spiritual worship instead of reasonable service. In other words, Paul is saying by the Holy Ghost, here's how you worship in spirit. Remember in John chapter 4 and verse 24, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well of Samaria, and he said, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Well, how do you do that? We charismatics are good about singing in tongues and thinking that's worshiping in spirit. Well, we're singing in the spirit, that's for sure. Whether we're worshiping or not has something to do with an attitude of the heart, not just the songs or the sound. But the way you worship in spirit is by presenting your body a living sacrifice. Notice you do that. God doesn't do that for you. In other words, you choose to separate yourself from the way that the world operates. That's sanctification, isn't it? Separation unto God. And notice it says that if you present your as a living sacrifice, that's holy and acceptable unto God. Well, that would have to be a sanctified life then, wouldn't it? Couldn't be holy unless it was sanctified. And if it is holy then that means it's something that we do, an action that we take, not something that Jesus has already done for us or in us or through us, but an action that we take as an act of our own will that sanctifies us under God. Now, that sounds good, but how many of us have tried that and failed? Everybody. Notice verse 2. Here's what gives us the ability to do that. And be not conformed to this world. Conformed means to be made like unto So if he's saying, don't be conformed to the world, he's saying, be separated from the world. Right? So even though sanctification isn't in either, either of these verses, the word sanctification is not in here. You can clearly see that's what he's talking about. He's talking about being separated from the world. Separated unto God for his service. And be not conformed unto this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove... What is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God? The word prove means to determine by experience. It's literally saying if you want to know the will of God in your life, you're going to have to renew your mind to the word. If you're going to experience the word of God in your life, it's going to be through the renewing of your mind. If you're going to present your body a living sacrifice, it's going to be by the renewing of the mind. In other words, it's the gaining of knowledge. Or maybe we say growing in wisdom. It's through growing in wisdom, the knowledge of the Word. And the Word of God is wisdom, so that would have to be true. Renewing your mind would be growing in wisdom. It's through growing in wisdom, the renewing of the mind, that you gain the information that you need about what Jesus has already done for you, not what He's doing for you now. He's not doing anything for you now. The Bible says He's seated at the right hand of God. Yeah, but doesn't the Bible say He's making intercession for us at that right hand of God? Yeah, and what that means is He's sitting down as the proof that you've been redeemed. If there was anything more to do, he'd be up doing it. But there's not. The work is finished. The grace of God is completed in redemption. So he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. He's not doing anything for you now because the work is finished. And because that work is finished, it's left incumbent upon you and me to grow in the knowledge of what was done so that we can partake of it. Wouldn't it be nice if the things of God just fell on us like ripe cherries off of a tree? Wouldn't that be nice? That's not the way it works, though, is it? The Bible says that the things that we're redeemed from only become ours when we take hold of them by faith. For example, the Bible tells us we've been redeemed from sickness. Healing doesn't just fall on you. You have to reach out and take it by faith. And that's where so much of the church world has, gained, has, has uh, entered into confusion is because they've taken the position that, well, if it's the will of God, it'll happen. Well, it's the will of God, and it did happen. So now you can take hold of it by faith. That's like saying, if God wants me to be saved, I'll get saved. Well, how's that going to happen? He's not going to usurp your will. He's not going to violate the will of man. God already wants everybody to be saved. Well, why isn't everybody saved? Because they don't choose to be. They don't reach out and take hold of it by faith. So the things of God have to be received by faith. It's the only way you can take hold of the things of God. Well, faith is based on knowledge. Faith is based on knowledge. Faith begins where the will of God is known. How do we find out the will of God in any situation or any given circumstance? By his word. Now, I like Paul's, uh, the fact that Paul wrote about two-thirds of the New Testament. And, uh, and And one of the reasons I like that so much is because we can follow Paul's example. Paul is the perfect example, start to finish, of somebody following Jesus. Perfect example. Turn back with me a few chapters chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. We won't get into a lot of this because we talked about this several weeks ago. But Paul tells us about a time in his life after he got saved. Do you remember Paul's salvation experience? He was persecuting the church. He was one of the Pharisees, one of the council, or at least commissioned by the council. He said he was a Pharisee. And he was sent with letters of, uh, authorizing him to put people and uh, Christians who were in Damascus in jail. He was uh, a bystander, willing bystander. He partook of the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 6. And now here in Acts chapter 9, he's sown his way to Damascus and the light shined from heaven that was brighter than the noonday sun. Knocked him off the animal he was riding. He heard a voice and said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Saul was blinded by that light. Matter of fact, he stayed blind for three days because of that light, not because of sickness or disease, but because that light was so bright. And so he couldn't see, but he could hear the voice, and he said, Who art thou, Lord? And Jesus answered and said, I'm Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Now, what does he mean? He means you are doing something that is so futile and so worthless in persecuting the church. Now, modern-day English... If you'll allow me to put my translation on this, Jesus is basically saying, Paul, here's your chance. It's now or never. The reason that he steps in is because Paul is persecuting the church. He's going to stop the persecution of the church one way or another. Now, Paul could have stayed blind forever for the, by the glory of that light. And his days of persecuting would be over. And that's, in my opinion, that's what Jesus is saying when he says it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. He's saying that's a um, uh, a gospel day's term. That's the way they got a, a, a yoke of oxen to move is they take a sharp stick and they poke them in the, the rear end. Well, the, the oxen would kick against that, but it wouldn't do any good because they couldn't reach it and they couldn't stop it anyway. Well, that's what he's that's what Jesus is saying to Paul. He's saying you can't stop the church by persecuting. it. That's good to know, isn't it? Persecution doesn 't stop the church as a matter of fact, every time you see the church persecuted, you see the church purified and come out stronger i 'm not suggesting we believe for persecution, but it's it kind of works out well. so he says it's hard for you to kick against the pricks and and Saul asked him, he said, "What will thou have me to do, Lord? now this is an uh oh moment for Paul because up to this point he's been persecuting the church for one and only one reason and that is. The church is saying Jesus is the son of God and risen from the dead. Saul says, no way. The law of Moses is the only thing there is. And we're going to shut everybody up, shut up everybody that disagrees with that. You can see what the spirit of the world is. We don't want to have anybody telling the truth. We've got to shut it down. Well, just as soon as Jesus speaks to him and says, I'm Jesus whom thou persecutest, Paul realizes everything that he's gone for, everything that he's been working against is wrong. So he has an opportunity here. He can either argue with God about it, which he's in not much of a position to do at that moment. Or he can change his life and he chooses to change his life. So he said, what would thou have me to do, Lord? He calls Jesus Lord. He knows he's risen from the dead because Jesus is talking to him. So at that moment, Saul is saved. Now, I don't know about you, but I didn't get saved that way. Anybody here get saved like that? Anybody see the light from heaven? caused you to get saved, hear a voice from heaven saying, This is Jesus. Now's your time. I didn't get saved like that. I didn't have an experience like him. We can't build on Paul's experience, but we can build on the result of making Jesus the Lord of your life and changing things around. Now, somewhere between then and when Paul starts writing letters to the church, writing the letter to the Romans that that we have record of, somewhere in that time, Paul has an experience that's very similar to ours, everybody does, where he's struggling with his flesh. He has a conflict between what his spirit wants to do, the man on the inside, the real him that wants to serve God, and his flesh, which does things that his spirit resents. If you'll allow me to put into these terms, he's having trouble with his conscience. Because your conscience is the voice of your spirit. Your conscience is that which tells you what you ought to be doing, that which is right. But he explains in the seventh chapter of Romans that the things that he, the man on the inside, wants to do, the things that his conscience tells him to do, he finds his body doing different things. In other words, the man on the inside is not strong enough to conquer the man on the outside. And the reverse is true. The things that he on the inside doesn't want to do, that's the stuff that his body's doing. Any of you had that conflict? Everybody does. Well, Paul conquers that. He gives us an example of how he conquered that. And his example is the only one that I've ever come to realize in, in either my own experience or in anybody else's that I've ever heard of that really works. He finds out how to conquer your flesh. He says, he identifies that it was gaining knowledge, the realization of who we are in Christ that made the difference. He didn't say that it was rules and regulations imposed by the church that helped him to live right. No, instead, he found out who we are and what righteousness really is. That's identified in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. The last part of that verse says, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. That's in some of the older transcripts, manuscripts, and not in others. To the best of my understanding, the oldest manuscripts don't contain that phrase, but others do. Now, even if it does, even if it does in the one that you want to look at, and some people choose to look at the ones that uh, that have that and say, well, no, that's in there. If you'll look down a little bit further in Romans chapter 8, you'll find that he says, well, let's start reading in verse 8, Romans chapter 8, verse 8. It says, so that they that are in the flesh cannot please God, but you are not in the flesh. But in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. Well, based on that context, even if that phrase, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit, is in verse 1, he's talking about people that are not saved. He's saying you're not in the flesh, you're in the Spirit, if if the Spirit of Christ is in you, if you've made Jesus the Lord of your life. So there's therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, period. Being in Christ Jesus makes you in the Spirit, according to Romans 8, 9. That's what he's talking about. Now, that wouldn't be true in every context, but it is in the context that he's speaking. So what is he saying? He's saying it was his revelation, the revelation of righteousness, who we are in Christ that enabled him to overcome his flesh. He writes further to the uh, to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 9, 27. He said, but I keep under my body. And bring it under subjection. I, the man on the inside, the spirit man, bring my body under subjection, lest after I having preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Well, let me ask you a question. How did go Paul go from chapter 7 of Romans, where he couldn't control his flesh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and verse 27, where he is controlling his flesh with his spirit? How did he get there? That's spiritual growth and development, isn't it? How did you get there? Through a revelation of righteousness, through the knowledge of who we are in Christ Jesus. He's finding out, he did find out, he tells us in Romans chapter 8, that God's not mad at you even if you're struggling with your flesh. Now here where it says there's no condemnation in Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation. That word condemnation, I was talking to a Greek scholar here not too long ago. He brought this verse to my attention. This word is damnation. It means after judgment. So here where it says there's no after judgment to them that are in Christ Jesus even those that are struggling with their flesh. That does not mean that, your, that your, your conscience won't condemn you. It doesn't mean that your own spirit won't condemn you. That's the problem Paul's having in chapter 7. He's saying, my conscience is condemning me. My conscience is telling me that my flesh is doing the wrong thing, and I, the man on the inside, wants to do the right thing. I want to obey my conscience, but I don't find the power to do it. How did he find the power? To come to the realization of who we are in Christ. The realization that God's not mad at you, he's not upset with you, he's not against you. No matter what struggle you're having with your flesh, no matter how many times you're stumbling and falling over your flesh, God's not against you. It just comes down to renewing your mind to the word, renewing your mind to who we are in Christ Jesus. That will give you the ability to conquer your flesh with your spirit. So what does that mean? That means that Paul's experience, his example, is to find out who you are in Christ and don't just be satisfied with stumbling over your flesh. He writes to the Galatians and he says, don't let your liberty be evil spoken of. Don't use it as an occasion to serve the flesh. So what is Paul finding out? Paul's finding out the same thing that the scripture that he writes to us, that scripture tells us. We need to know who we are in Christ, the power that we have to overcome the flesh, the sins of the flesh and so forth. Don't be satisfied with stumbling over your flesh, but grow in God. Now, what does he do? Paul grows to the place where he doesn't live by his conscience alone, but by the conscience of other people. He goes from the weakest of Christians where he can't control his flesh to a strong Christian that's living not just by his conscience, but by what other people believe to. Turn with me over to First Corinthians chapter 6. Let me show you a couple of scriptures here. And again, we're still talking about sanctification. We're still, still talking about manner of life. First Corinthians chapter 6, let's start reading in verse, uh, well, verses 9 and 10, he gives a list of, of those who shall not inherit the kingdom of God. He ends in verse 10, none of these people shall inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11 is really what I want you to start seeing. And such were some of you, before they were saved, in other words. But you are washed, but you are sanctified. He's talking salvation, isn't he? But you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful unto me. Now notice he's just saying this in context with manner of life. He's saying the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God, including fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, uh, that means homosexual. Abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners. None of these shall inherit the kingdom of God. It doesn't mean that none of those people can get saved because he just said "And some of you were in that category. So those people can certainly get saved. But he's saying that activity won't inherit the kingdom of God. He's not talking about not going. He's not saying that they won't go to heaven. He's saying you won't experience the blessings of God here on the earth. So lifestyle has something to do with receiving from God. Has to. Now, why is that? Let me stop and take a little side journey here. Why is that? Is it because God's mad at you if you don't live right? No. Paul just told us in Romans chapter 8 verse 1, God can't get mad at you no matter what because you're in Christ Jesus. Well, then why does lifestyle have something to do with receiving from God? John said, John writing to the church, 1 John chapter 3, maybe we ought to look at this. Hold your finger here. We're coming back to 1 Corinthians 6. But 1 John chapter 3, about verse I'm going to guess 21. John said, Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, he's talking about your spirit. In other words, the voice of your spirit, which is your conscience. He said, If our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. Notice your confidence toward God. And faith is necessary to receive from God. So he's talking about the operation of faith. He's saying faith is necessary that for faith to operate. It is necessary for you to have a clear conscience before God. Now, the only thing your heart's going to condemn you for is a step outside of love, because love is the only commandment there is in the new covenant. And remember, Galatians chapter five, or Galatians chapter six and verse five says that faith works by love. So your heart, your spirit, your conscience is always trying to keep you in love for at least for one purpose, so that you can receive from your Father. So John says, if our heart condemn us not, if our conscience isn't telling us we're doing the wrong thing, in other words, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God, and, verse 22, and whatsoever we ask, we receive of Him, because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. Now, what commandment does he mean? And this is his commandment, verse 23, that we should believe on the name of the Lord, His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. In other words, he's saying you've got to walk in love if you're going to receive from God. Well, you can't be an idolater and receive from God. That's what he means. He, these people cannot inherit the kingdom of God. He means you can't receive from God here. It doesn't mean you can't get to heaven. It means you can't receive the things of God here on the earth. He's saying thieves can't receive the things of God here on the earth. They can be saved. We know thieves can be saved. Paul wrote to the Ephesians and he said, quit stealing. Let him that stole steal no more. Well, really? Christians stealing? Yeah. What does it mean? It means their spirit has not conquered the desires of their flesh to steal. They're saved. They're on their way to heaven. But as long as they're going to give in to stealing, they're not going to receive the things of God here on the earth. Lifestyle is really important. That's one thing for you to stumble and and fail and and trip over things of the flesh, like Paul did in Romans chapter seven. God will keep things going for that, you know, for you in that uh, in that circumstance. God will keep things on working on your behalf because He sees your heart. But once you give in and say, "Well, this is just the way it's always going to be," or whatever the case is, stop listening to your spirit about it. Don't think you are going to receive anything from the Lord. Your faith won't work. Is anybody out there? Can you see that? I'm not asking you to agree with me. I'm asking you, can you see it from the Bible? It may not be good news for some folks. But it's what the Bible says is true. That's why lifestyle is important. That's why God doesn't want you to be satisfied with stumbling over your flesh. That's why God wants you to follow Paul's example and go from where your conscience is condemning you and he's struggling with it to realizing who we are in Christ so that you can overcome it so that you can be like Paul and say, I keep my body under. That's what sanctification is all about. It's not do's and don'ts. It's not lists of rules and stuff like that. It's you living with a clear conscience before God. And folks, I've got to tell you, I've had the same experience as Paul. I've been in times of my life where my flesh defeated me, and I'm now in a place in my life where I have a clear conscience, and there is no comparison between the two. A clear conscience is worth everything. Okay, back to 1 Corinthians 6. Verse 11, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful unto me. Now, how much is all? What does he mean all things are lawful unto him? Aren't some of the things that he just identified in that list of things that that keep you from inheriting the kingdom of God, aren't those contrary to the law of love? Yes, they are. But they're not unlawful for him. Paul is saying, I don't have a rule or a law from God that says I can't do this stuff. I can do anything I want to. I'm still in Christ Jesus. I'll still make heaven. All things are lawful unto me, but not all things are expedient. The word expedient means helpful or beneficial. Just because I can do something doesn't mean that I should. Now, folks, I would submit to you that the conversation that takes place in, in the church about what can Christians do, can Christians smoke, can Christians drink. Can It's all about what we can do, not what we should do. The question really shouldn't be for the Christian, can a Christian do anything? Smoke, drink, cuss, whatever. That shouldn't be the question. Can a Christian, or certainly a Christian can. And none of those things will keep him from getting to heaven. The question is, should he? Isn't that what Paul's saying? Paul's saying, all things are lawful under me. Think about where he came from. He came from the place where he was doing the wrong thing and couldn't control his flesh. Now he's saying, I can do anything. He's got a pretty good understanding of who he is in Christ Jesus now, doesn't he? All things are lawful unto me. In other words, God doesn't get mad at me for anything that I do. It's not a matter of God being against me. It's not a matter of me jeopardizing my salvation. All things are lawful unto me. But not all things are expedient. Not all things are helpful. Not all things are beneficial to the life that I want to live. Well, what life does he want to live? Clearly he wants to live where his spirit dominates his flesh or else he wouldn't have had the conflict in Romans 7. He'd have just given in to his flesh and said, Oh, well, I'll be like everybody else. All things are lawful unto me, but not all things are expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Please notice that last phrase. Notice what Paul judges, judges expedience by. Notice what he judges benefit by. He says, I'm not going to be brought under the power of anything. Remember, this is, the Rome, this is the Corinthian church that he writes to in chapter 9 and verse 27. We quoted it earlier. He said, but I keep under my body, lest after I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. In other words, he's saying, I have to live up to my own preaching just like I'm expecting you to. I don't get a pass just because I'm the one that knows. He says, I'm not going to be brought under the power of anything. I'm not going to let anything dominate me, the man on the inside. I'm not going to let any desire of my flesh, I'm not going to let any action in life dominate the man that Jesus died for me to be. The new creation in Christ Jesus. That's the man that's going to dominate. That's the decision that Paul has made and his decision that every one of us in, in the church should make along with him. Nothing is going to dominate the man on the inside. I will not be brought under the power of any. Verse 13. Meats for the belly and the belly for meats. But God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God has both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his own power. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? God forbid. Now, Paul talks about three things primarily when he talks about sanctification. He talks about meats offered to idols. He talks about drinking and he talks about fornication. Turn with me over to chapter 10 of 1st Corinthians. Those were the issues of his day. Now, while you're turning there, let me, let me tell you what the meats offered to idols were about. There were in Gentile lands and Gentile countries. There were all kinds of idol worships uh, in temples and things like that that were taking place. And many times, most times, the ways that people would worship these idols is that they would bring sacrifices. They would bring animals that uh, that they were going to to, uh, to sacrifice to these false gods and these idols. And after they presented them to the temple and sacrificed them, the temple would turn around and sell them to the meat markets. No reason stacking up, you know, dead animals in the in the back of the um, temples dedicated to idols. So they'd sell them to the meat markets. And then the meat markets would sell them to everybody in the general population. Well, some Christians started being offended by that. They'd say, well, wait a minute. The food that we're buying to eat, you know, in our households and with our families, that's to eat meat that's been offered to idols. That's not right for us to eat. So it became a real controversy. It became a real issue. So when Paul talks about meats, that's what he's talking about. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10 uh, let's see. Let's start reading in verse... Uh, uh, how far back do we want to go? Let's go back to verse 16. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Behold Israel after the flesh. Are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What shall I say then? That the idol is anything? Or that that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? In other words, he's saying an idol is nothing. Therefore, the sacrifice made to an idol is nothing. Now, he knows that because he's grown in God. He knows that because he's renewed his mind to the word. But not everybody knows that. Not everybody has that same knowledge. But I say... That the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that you should have fellowship with devils. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? All things are lawful unto me. Notice that phrase again. He said that in chapter 6. Now he's saying it again in chapter 10. All things are lawful unto me. Now what things is he talking about? He's saying it's okay if I eat meat offered to idols. Because the idol is nothing and the sacrifice is nothing. Gentiles worshiping idols. They're worshiping the devil. But that doesn't mean I am. We're talking about not being a partaker. He's not talking about eating the meat that's sacrificed to the idol. He's talking about offering idols sacrifices too. In other words, don't mix Christianity with the other idol worship that's going on. That's exactly what happened in Ephesus. In Acts chapter 19, it talks about how the, the word of God was being spread throughout all of Asia in the space of two years. And then it tells us about the seven sons of Siva. You remember the story? The seven guys that were uh, uh, sons of one Jewish exorcist. They saw that Paul was casting the devil out in the name of Jesus. And so they took upon themselves to try to cast the devil out of some person, some woman. And he said, and they said this, we adjure thee in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, come out of him. And the devil in whom this woman was said, Paul I know and Jesus I know, but who are you? And the evil spirit that was in that, that lady jumped on these seven guys. In other words, it empowered her to defeat these seven guys, stripped them off of their clothes and they went running naked down the street. It's not enough to know about Jesus, you've got to know him for yourself. It says that when everybody heard about that, fear came upon all of them and they started from every quarter bringing their curious arts. That means occult practices and ritual stuff and whatever uh, items and tokens and things like that they had. They brought their religious or uh, occult tokens and brought them and burned them in the street and the, the, the price thereof was some I don't even remember what the, some number of pieces of silver. It's got the equivalent of five million dollars. Now let me ask you a question. What are Christians still doing with that other stuff? See, they had assumed Christianity as just something else, just another God to worship until they saw the power in the name of Jesus. When they saw the power in the name of Jesus, they realized God is the one true God. Jesus is the Son of God. Forget all this other stuff. So in other words, they purified their lives of the other things. And then the Bible says, so the word of God grew mightily and prevailed. It had been preached before, had a great revival before, but it only started prevailing in their lives when they made it first and foremost. That's what Paul is talking about here. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are expedient. All things are lawful, but all things edify not. Let no man seek his own wealth, but every man another's, King James says wealth, it means another's well-being. In other words, don't live according to what suits you, live according to that which will help and bless and build up your brother. Whatsoever is sold in the shambles, shambles is meat market. Whatsoever is sold in the shambles, that eat, asking no question for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. In other words, he's saying there's nothing wrong with the meat. But don't create a controversy by trying to find out where it's been or where it came from. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If any of them that believe not bid you to a feast and you be disposed to go. He's talking about unbelievers, then isn't he? Whatsoever is set before you eat, asking no question for conscience sake. In other words, don't stir up the controversy if it's not there. But if any man say unto you, this is offered in sacrifice unto idols, don't eat it. For his sake that showed it. In other words, he's saying because it means something to the other guy, show that it doesn't mean anything to you. Since it means something to the other person, they've offered it unto an idol, which is the same as worshiping devils, stay away from it. And let them know that you're staying away from it. Let them know that you're separating yourself from the things of the world. If any man say unto you, this is offered in sacrifice unto idols, eat not for his sake that showed it, and for conscience' sake, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Conscience, I say, not thine own, but of the other. For why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? For if I by grace be a partaker, why am I evil spoken of for that which I, have, which I give thanks? Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God, even as I please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying it's okay for me, but I'm looking out for the other guy. If the other guy knows that this is meat offered to an idol, if they know that it's something that the world does, I'm not going to partake of it because I'm not going to hurt his conscience. How could you hurt the conscience of an unbeliever? Most unbelievers I know don't have much conscience. How could you hurt the conscience of an unbeliever? He's talking about representing the Lord. He's saying, I'm not going to eat something before an unbeliever who thinks an offering to an idol means something. I'm not going to eat it because I'm going to show them that I believe in God and not his idol. So I'm going to separate myself from the world because I'm looking out for the other guy's well-being. Now, look at how Paul has developed in spirit over whatever period of time we're talking about. He went from where his spirit couldn't conquer his flesh in Romans chapter 7, To finding out who we are in Christ, to finding out that we have the ability to overcome the desires of the flesh, to now where he's not even living according to what he wants to do, he's living according to what helps his other, his brother or his, the other guy. Turn with me over to Romans 14. Let's start reading in verse 8. Paul says, For whether we live, we live under the Lord, and whether we die, we die under the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be both Lord of the, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Notice the three things. He died. We understand that's his physical death on the cross. He rose, we understand that he rose from the dead, but notice he got revived in there too. Revived means made spiritually alive. He died both physically and spiritually, and he rose from the dead and was revived, meaning born again from spiritual death. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? Now, the the Romans had a different situation than the Corinthians did. The Roman situation is they're sitting back. Somebody is sitting back. The general idea is to sit back and to judge from people's behavior just how spiritual they are. We've never seen that in churches, have we? Some people are eating meat offered to idols and others are sitting back judging saying, well, that's wrong. They're doing the wrong thing. They must not love God at all. In other words, their actions are being judged. That's what he's talking about here. He said, but why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it naught thy brother? Why do you count him as nothing because of the way that he's living? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Folks, Paul was very conscious of the judgment seat of Christ. In other words, now, now please understand there's a difference between the judgment seat of Christ and the great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment is where the Bible says that death and hell give up the dead and the, the books of life are open to see if men's uh, names are written therein. Well, let me ask you a question. Since most of the church world thinks that when you get saved, that's when your names are written down in the Lamb's book of life, why in the world would they be looking in the book of life for people that are dead? The fact is, the Bible never tells you when your, book, your name is written down in the Lamb's book of life. It tells you about your name being blotted out by rejecting Jesus. But it never says where your name is written down in the Lamb's book of life. The fact is, God writes your name down before you're ever born into the earth. Jesus died from the foundations of the world. That means from the creation of the world, not from when God put Adam and Eve here on the earth, but from the creation of the world in the beginning. God wrote your name down in the Lamb's book of life before you ever made it to the earth. He planned for you to have a life here. And as a result, Jesus died for the sins of the world. He died for everybody before the world was ever formed. So everybody's name is written down in the Lamb's Book of Life. We don't know exactly when that takes place, but it's certainly before you get to the earth. So the reason that the death and hell give up the dead and the books are open, the Lamb's Book of Life is open, they're looking to see have they rejected Jesus once and for all so that their names are blotted out. Not that their names were never written there. Everybody's name is written there. Can you see it? That's why Jesus died for everybody. That's why salvation belongs to everybody. Because everybody's name. The Bible says you were predestined to be children of God. Before you were ever born, God predestines you to be a child of God. He predestines you to life, and so he wrote your name down in the book of life. It's only through our actions that we can blot it out or have it blotted out. So let's go back to where we were. He said, oh, I, I, I need to finish my thought. Here where it says in verse 10, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The great white throne judgment is where the dead are judged and then cast into the lake of fire. The judgment seat of Christ is something totally different. The judgment seat of Christ is where just the people of God stand before the Lord and re- we're rewarded for our works. The works that we do here on the earth that are that are for eternity shall last The works that we do that are temporal, in other words, works of the flesh rather than things that are motivated by the Spirit, the Bible says those things will burn up like wood, hay, and stubble. But eternal works shall be purified like gold and silver. That's where you receive your rewards. The judgment seat of Christ is a reward ceremony. It's not for the unsaved, it's just for the believers. But Paul is is real concerned about that. Paul is real concerned that the things that he does here on the earth will last for eternity. He keeps it consistently in his thinking, in his mind, he keeps this idea that I'm going to stand before the Lord and be judged for everything that I do, so I want to make sure I do the right thing. It's a good way for us to live. It's part of the example that he used to live not by his own conscience, but by other people's conscience. So he said... Why dost thou judge thy brother, or why dost thou set it not your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I shall live, or as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself unto God. Let us not therefore judge one another any more. In other words, he says, because God's the one that rewards us for what we do, because our works will either be eternal and last, or or temporal and and burn up, We shouldn't be judging each other for our works. That's harder to do than it is to say. We all have a tendency to judge other people by our actions. We all have a tendency to compare one another with ourselves. But that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, that's not your job. A person's works will fall or stand based on Jesus, not based on you and what you think about it. In other words, he's saying, don't worry about what the other guy's doing. Take care of yourself, knowing that you'll receive a reward for the eternal works that you do. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Verse 12, verse 13, let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather. You want to judge something? Judge this to be true. But judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know, please notice he said he knows something, not he thinks something, not he believes something. He said, I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus. In other words, I learned this from Jesus himself. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is is unclean. The word esteem is the same word translated reckon in Romans chapter 6 and verse 11, where it says, therefore reckon you yourselves Alive unto God, dead unto sin, and alive unto God. The word reckon here, this word esteem, means to accept to be true that which is an established fact. So he says, with that in mind, let's read it again. He said, I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him that accepts something to be true, accepts to be true that something is unclean, to him it is unclean. In other words, he's saying, live by your conscience. Other people have to live by their conscience. Everybody lives by their own conscience. So be aware of the other guy's conscience, not what you know about things being clean or unclean. In other words, he's saying, it doesn't matter what's lawful alone. Live according to the other man's conscience. Because you don't know what the other guy seems something. You don't know what the other guy accepts to be true. So don't do anything that puts a stumbling block in his way. But if their brother be grieved with thy meat... Now walkest thou not charitably. In other words, he's saying, if you use your knowledge about meat offered unto idols, that there's nothing wrong with it, an idol is nothing, the sacrifice is nothing, who cares? If the other guy is damaged in his conscience by your actions, you're not living according to love. Folks, that's quite a change from where Paul started off in Romans 7. Destroy not him with thy meat. The word destroy means to influence him. In other words, don't influence him to do something that breaks his conscience or violates his conscience. Destroy him not with your meat for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. What you're doing may be right, may be be lawful, may be acceptable. God doesn't care, but don't let it be used as something that hurts somebody else and is spoken against you as evil. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace. He didn't say let us therefore follow after the things you know are okay. He said follow after the things that make for peace with the other guy. How is Paul keeping his body under? Paul keeps his body under by living according to the other man's conscience. Not even according to his own conscience. His conscience is pure whether he eats or not. He's going to make sure that he doesn't do anything to cause somebody else to stumble. That's how he keeps his flesh under. How many times have we heard Christians say, Well, I don't care what anybody thinks about it. I'm going to do what I know is okay. That's not what Paul saying. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. For meat destroys not the work of God. In other words, he's saying the sacrifice being offered unto an idol itself is not enough to destroy the work of God. Why then should you make it an issue to harm somebody else? All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. Offense how? Offense toward his own conscience. Not offense toward God. It's not an offense toward God. But it would be an offense toward your own conscience. It is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth or is offended or is made weak. Now, folks, please notice what Paul is saying. He's saying it's a good thing not to eat anything that offends somebody else's conscience. It's a good thing not to drink anything that offends somebody else's conscience. It's a good thing not to do anything that offends somebody else's conscience. That's a good thing. Well, that would be according to the law of love then. If it's a good thing, it has to be in line with love. Right? Notice Paul does not make a hard and fast rule. Thus saith the Lord, thou shalt not eat anything offered to idols. Thou shalt not drink wine. Thou shalt not do anything therewith whereby people will speak against you. He doesn't say that. He doesn't make a rule. He says, here's what love does. Not everybody is going to, love, is going to uh, yield to the law of love. Not everybody is going to be mature enough to want to do what God wants and what the love of God directs them to do instead of what their flesh wants. But he puts it out there and says, here's, here it is. It is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth or is offended or is made weak. Hast thou faith? Have it to yourself before God. He said, this is a matter of believing God individually. Happy is he that condemneth not himself and the thing which he allows. In other words, he's saying the key to happiness is not to judge somebody else for what they do or don't do. I guess a modern day translation could translate it this way. Mind your own business. And your business is to not offend the other guy. Your business is not to see that the other guy doesn't offend the other guy. Your business is to not offend the other person and mind your own business. Verse 23, and he that doubteth is damned if he eat because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. I want to read an article with you. I know we're out of time, but let me take just a minute or two. It's uh, it's just two pages. Um, no, it's three pages. It's written about a year and a half ago. I don't know who this guy is. he's a retired pastor from Indiana and uh, and I could tell you the things that are in the article, but he's got a lot of experience in ministry, it seems from from the things that he says and I just wanted to hear what you had to what he, I want you to hear what he has to say about this. The article is uh, to drink or not to drink. I decided many years ago to totally abstain from alcohol. And it is my opinion that all Christians would do well to make the same decision. I believe this issue is important because it relates to a broader and thus even more significant subject, that of the modern church's ongoing move toward becoming more and more like the world. My bias. In the interest of full disclosure, disclosure, I am biased. I hate alcohol. Not the taste, although to be honest, I hate that too. But what it does to people. The first funeral of a teenager I conducted was of a young man killed by a drunk driver. I've had literally hundreds of counseling sessions with couples and spouses as their marriages teetered on the brink because of alcohol. I can't count the hours I've spent in jails and prisons visiting inmates whose lives have been forever negatively impacted because of the crimes they committed while under the influence. Even more hours have been spent in emergency rooms, trauma units, and at hospital bedsides while ministering to victims of alcohol. The horror stories I could tell could fill a book. The teenage girl losing her virginity while drinking. The college student brain damaged after a fraternity initiation. The young minister involved in a terrible wreck after having just a couple of beers to relax. And scores of others. Let me be blunt. I see absolutely no positive argument for something that will make you act like an idiot. Smell like a brewery. Fight like a fool. Impair your motor functions. Drain your bank account give you a hangover, scare your kids, alienate your spouse, make you a danger to your fellow man, and has the potential to enslave you. I wish I could tell you all that I know about this is from the vantage point of a pastor. Regrettably, I must admit that during my prodigal days, drinking was very much a part of my social life, and for the same reason most people start drinking, peer pressure. I wanted to fit in. I can also tell you the time I decided to quit. It was early one morning when I woke up in the middle of a street in front of a frat house across from the Southwest Missouri State University campus. I decided right then and there that drinking could get you killed, and I was right. Before we go any further, let me state the obvious. I know that Jesus miraculously created wine as his first public miracle in Cana, and that a person could have consumed enough to get drunk. Yes, Paul told Timothy to drink a little wine for medicinal purposes. It is true that the Bible nowhere forbids the drinking of alcohol, only its its abuse to the point of drunkenness. Paul said, don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. That's Ephesians 5.18 from the New Living Translation. It's also true that many people, including many Christians, drink only in moderation. A glass of wine with their dinner or a cold beer on a hot day. And I'm not suggesting that such will make you descend into the gutter. But let's consider the whole counsel of God concerning the use of alcohol. Proverbs 23, verses 29 and 30 say, Who has anguish? Who has sorrow? Who is always fighting? Who is always complaining? Who has unnecessary bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? It is the one who spends long hours in the taverns trying out new drinks. There are six consequences listed in verse 29, all in the form of a rhetorical question. The first of which is, who has anguish? The Hebrew word for anguish is an expression of despair and impending doom. It is no coincidence that 40% of suicide attempts are alcohol-related. The wise man goes on to ask the source of sorrow, fighting, complaints, unnecessary bruises, bloodshot eyes, and makes it clear that the source is overindulgence of alcohol. Most people in the ancient world drank alcohol. The Egyptians and Babylonians were manufacturing beer 3,000 years before Christ. But here's something you need to know. Alcohol use radically changed in A.D. 700 when Arab chemists discovered how to distill alcohol, which led to the ability to produce higher potent concentrations. Thus, the wine and beer produced previous to that was, for the most part, very low in alcoholic content. You could get drunk, but you had to drink a lot to do so. However, today, if you buy a bottle of whiskey, liquor, or even wine, the natural fermentation is bolstered by the addition of distilled alcohol. New wine in biblical days had very little alcoholic content, and even aged wine had a low amount compared to today's standards. Don't take my word for it. You can easily research it using the Internet. By the way, the, the somebody did a calculation on this stuff, and they, uh, they calculated, and I, I don't know how accurate it is. I'm just going to give you the information. Nineteen glasses of wine in Jesus' day would be the equivalent of two martinis today. So when Paul talks about not being drunk with wine... He's talking about something totally different than people indulge in today. Back to the article. So-called adult beverages are very much a part of American social life. However, the advertising industry doesn't sell intoxication, but fantasy. It doesn't sell reality, but fiction. Ads for alcoholic beverages tout happiness, wealth, prestige, sophistication, success, maturity, athletic ability, virility, creativity, and sexual satisfaction. But these are the very things alcohol abuse destroys. Proverbs 23, verses 31 and 32 says, Don't gaze at the wine seeing how red it is, how it sparkles in the cup, how smoothly it goes down, for in the end it bites like a poisonous snake, it stings like a viper. I haven't even mentioned the millions of Americans that are in bondage to alcohol because of their addiction to it. But listen to the closing verses of Proverbs 23. You will see hallucinations and you will say crazy things. You will stagger like a sailor tossed at sea, clinging to a swaying mast. And you will say, they hit me, but I didn't feel it. I didn't even know it when they beat me up. When will I wake up so I can look for another drink? Let me ask a simple question. Why should you drink? If you never take the first drink, you'll never become addicted. If you don't drink, even if you could handle it, you won't be a stumbling block to those who can't. And I believe Paul said something about not causing your brother to stumble. And if you don't drink, you won't be supporting an industry that has caused untold heartache for millions of people. Try a little experiment. Carefully read a city newspaper the next seven days. Make a note of all the stories of tragedy and heartache that somehow involve alcohol. Then against that backdrop, try to defend its use. A quote often attributed to Abraham Lincoln is, alcohol has many defenders but no defense. At the beginning of this article, I suggested that this topic is representative of the broader subject of the church becoming more and more conformed to the world. I have a number of preacher friends who are social drinkers, I know of several churches that have changed their policy manuals to allow for social drinking. I've even heard it defended as a tool for evangelism. And he says in parentheses, I wish I had the space to deal with that one. But let's be honest. Is it not simply an attempt to fit in with the world? What happened to don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking? That's Romans 12, 2 from the message translation. America's number one problem, drug Uh, I'm sorry, America's number one problem drug is not an illegal drug like cocaine, marijuana, meth, or heroin, as big a problem as they are. The number one problem drug is a lethal one, alcohol. It causes more deaths and more addictions than any other drug. More than 55% of highway deaths are alcohol-related. There are more than 17 million alcoholics in America, and that number is rising. And it's impossible to quantify the death, disability, psychosis, and relational harm done by alcohol. No, the Bible doesn't say thou shalt not drink. And you may be able to handle it. But what about your children who are introduced to it by the use, introduced to the use of alcohol by your example and who are not able to handle it? I can point to many parents who would give anything to be able to go back and become abstainers if only for the sake of their kids. Taking all this into consideration, isn't it best to remember the words of Paul? You say I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. You say I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. Don't be concerned for your own good, but for the good of others. He quotes 1 Corinthians 10, verses 23 and 24 from the New Living Translation. Folks, the one thing I've never heard about people drinking alcohol, I've never heard anybody say, it makes me feel more Christ-like. Now, does the Bible, I think the article does a good job, because it doesn't say you can't, but the question is Why? In Paul's day, like I said, there are three things that he made mention of, three things that were the issues, eating meat offered to idols, drinking, and fornication. There's not too much change in 2,000 years. Those are still issues today. Eating meats offered to idols is not a big deal. Meats is a different thing in the last days of the church according to what Paul said it's going to be. But there's not a whole lot that's changed. The question is, How are we going to allow love to dominate our lives? I keep going back to what Paul's example has shown us. Paul went from not being able to control his flesh to keeping his body under, to living by the other guy's conscience. How better can we be an example to the world than letting love dominate every aspect of our lives? It's not my job to tell you what you can do or what you can't do. The Bible doesn't even do that. I've heard everybody make, I've heard people make all kinds of excuses and all kinds of arguments. Jesus drank wine. Yes, he did. Not the same thing as wine today, but he did. Paul told Timothy to use wine for his stomach's sake. He did. But water wasn't what it is today. Water wasn't pure like it is today. <laughs> well, I guess I should qualify that. You couldn't get pure water like you can today in some, some situations. There's all kinds of excuses. There's all kinds of reasons that you can use. The question is, What is it going to do to the other guy? That's the way that we ought to live our lives. That's what sanctification is about, folks. It's separating yourself for the service of the Lord, not what suits you, but what can help and bless and benefit the other guy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you didn't give us a list of do's and don'ts, but that you made us righteous by the blood of Jesus. Thank you that because we are in Christ, all things are lawful unto us, but we have this power, Through the power of the name of Jesus, we have the power to overcome our flesh and the desires thereof. Father, help us to be a people that grow in love. Help us to be a people that are dominated by the love of God to such a degree that we don't live by our own conscience alone, but we live by that which would offend the conscience of others. Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you by this shall all men know you're my disciples. Let that love shine in us, Father, in every aspect of our lives. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.